Well, good morning, church. My name is Ross, and what a joy it is to get to share God's word with you today. Matthew 21, 18 is where we're gonna be, and so if you have a Bible, why don't you turn there? We're continuing in our multi-year, verse-by-verse study of Matthew's gospel, and what a brilliant journey it has been, and we're kinda rounding the final bend in that study. It's still gonna take us another year, so don't get carried away with excitement, but we are in the final turn. A couple of weeks ago, my wife, Sue, and I I did one of the most stereotypically suburban things that anyone could possibly do. We spent quite a bit of our free time and a fair deal of our available money at a neighborhood nursery or gardening center kind of thing. It was your stereotypical ruining of a Saturday morning um, that suburban residents so frequently do. You see, as we've gotten older, we've developed a chronic and crippling case of actually caring about what our yard looks like. It's debilitating and incurable, I believe. Um, But it wasn't just the time and the treasure we were prepared to spend on purchasing a tree that amounted to the stereotypical suburban folly. It gets worse. It's the actual tree that we bought that is so stupendously um, stupid, right? It's just, uh, my mind boggles. I'm trying to plant this tree at the moment in the rock hard supposed Texas soil um, that we have here. And every time I try to plant it, I'm like, man, this tree is so stupid. You see, we bought an utterly useless tree. We bought something known as a fruitless olive tree. You seen one of these things? They're beautiful and completely pointless, right? And so why did we buy one? Well, we like the way that olive trees look. Aesthetically, they're very pleasing and it's gonna help me to provide a hedge of protection against the prying eyes of my neighbors, right? So um, it's, it's useful in that way, but what we don't like is olive trees dropping mushy olives onto the, the ground, right? And so a fruitless olive makes sense in the suburbs. You see, the olives that I like to eat are grown by somebody in Central Market, I believe, and those ones are delicious, and so I have no desire of eating any that don't come out of a preserved bottle. And so we bought a tree that has literally been designed and in fact genetically modified to pretend to be something that it is not. And it is this pretense, um, and it's in its pretense, it has no other purpose. It's got no other purpose other than as an aesthetic one. It needs to look a certain way more than it needs to be a certain thing. You see that? Quintessentially suburban. Trying desperately to look good by pretending to be something that you actually are not. This is the exact sort of nonsense that Jesus addresses powerfully in the, in the text we're gonna study today. It's one of his only inverted miracles, which is a miracle that leads to death rather than to life, a power that leads to destruction rather than to flourishing. So once you read it together with me in Matthew 21, we'll go from verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, that's Jerusalem, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. 
And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now the context here is fascinating and essential for us to gain a proper understanding of what Jesus means. Uh, We are heading into what was the final week of Jesus' life here on earth. He had experienced the glory of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem where they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, right? Blessed be the son of David. But as we saw in the text last week when Aaron Ivey taught us, Jesus was saddened and angered by what he encountered in the holy city. As he gets into the pinnacle of that city, into the temple courts, he discovers what? Empty religion. And so we see another side of Jesus well up, one that we perhaps don't expect from from all of the evidence that we've seen of him being so meek and mild and gentle and humble and patient. What does he do? He turns tables over in the temple courts and he reminds his people that his father desired that his house was supposed to be a place for people of all nations, supposed to be a place where the outsiders could come, supposed to be a place where the Gentiles were welcomed in. To do what? To encounter the one true holy God in a posture of what? In a posture of dependence, in a posture of prayer. You see, the temple was never supposed to be a grandiose auditorium of religious theater though it had become one. It was supposed to be a house of humility and the practice of human dependence, not a place of posturing and empty displays of human strength. It was supposed to be a place where the weak could come and meet with God in his mercy and not supposed to be a place where the strong got to block the entrance through profit mongering off of religious goods and services, which is what was happening in the temple. Jesus then leaves Jerusalem and he goes to stay in Bethany, probably a study of the text tells us with Mary, Martha and the still very much alive Lazarus, who I imagine is still causing a stir wherever he goes, right? Every day Lazarus travels out, people go, how are you feeling today, Lazarus? Great, they're like, I can't believe it. He's still alive, right? And so Jesus goes and stays at their house. He loved staying with this family and I love the humanity of that. Jesus has a special affinity for this family. He loves spending time with them, eating meals with them, resting his weary head in their home. And somewhere between there house and Jerusalem, he encounters a fig tree on the side of the road. Now, a couple of interesting side notes here, if you're a Bible nerd or interested in these things at all, um, but just some things in the text that aren't main points, but are interesting to me. Firstly, I love how Matthew records for us that Jesus was hungry. Isn't the incarnation of Christ such mysterious humility? (laughs) It must be the most humble act in the history of the cosmos. Jesus has so much power and he submits himself to such limitation and weakness all the time. It's amazing. He was hungry. The king of the cosmos was hungry. The walking bread maker, he showed us that again and again, feels the pangs of hunger. So that when we feel need, when we feel our weakness, when we feel desperation, we can go to a sympathetic high priest who goes, I know how that feels. Oh, the humility of the humanity of our King Jesus. Uh, Secondly, interestingly enough, Matthew and Mark tell this story a little bit differently, as they often do. 
And I would rather point that out to you today than let you discover that in your Bible study um, this week and, in, and encounter some form of reliability doubt as a result. I see people often do this. They go like, hey, but the, the recording in Matthew and Mark is slightly different. Does that mean the Bible's not trustworthy? No, it just means it's told from different perspectives over a period of time. Mark says that this visitation of the, uh, the, the fig tree happens over two days, one on the way into Jerusalem and one on the way back from Jerusalem. Matthew compresses it into one one instance, I see no meaningful alteration to meaning. In both instances, the tree dies straight away at the command of Jesus. In Mark's account though, they only come across um, seeing it as fully dead the next morning. I love the nuances actually of the storytelling across the gospels and how they can reflect the same events with such incredible accuracy, but yet with different detail. Okay, just two observations for us today from a complex text and then two responses, okay? All right, two observations. First one, Jesus condemns. You don't often hear those two words together, right? That Jesus is so loving, so merciful, so kind, that when people are weak, when they're wounded, when they're bent, when they're broken, when they're bruised, what does he do? He welcomes them in. But he also clearly draws some lines of things that he says are sinful and things that he brings rebuke and opposition and indeed condemnation against. He does that again and again and any accurate reading of the gospels will show you that. Well, what's one of the things that he condemns that we see in this text? He condemns fruitless religious pretense. He condemns things that pretend to be what they are not. Now, at first read, many find this account incongruent with what they know about the life of Jesus. Were any of you shocked again when you read it this morning? I know some arborists in the room are like, that's terrible. We've got to save the trees, right? We cut down a, a cedar tree in, in our backyard in order to put the fruitless olive. Um, and people got sad with us. And they got sad with us through the tears that the cedar tree itself was producing in their eyes. They weren't tears of sadness. They were tears of allergy as this foreign invasive species ruined our neighborhood, right? Ruined everyone's quality of life. And we cut it down, people are like, you're so cruel. I can't believe it. I'm like, oh, no, I'm fine with that one, right? It's okay. Watch me grind this stump down now with a chainsaw. You wanna come watch? Can you hear its groaning? Can you hear its cries for help? I can. It pleases my ears, right? And my sinus cavity um, as I do this. And so some people are like, this is incredibly cruel. Jesus is so loving and tender and gracious and kind. And so being a tree killer, seems out of place for what we know about him. But this, friends, is what is known as an enacted parable. You know, Jesus tells us word picture stories all the time. This is him living out a word picture story. And it simply displays the exact warning that God has been giving to his people for thousands of years up until that point. Here's the warning. Faith bears fruit. <laughs> and so if you don't bear fruit, you must question your faith. The, the warning through imagery that runs right through the scriptures is that healthy trees, right? The, the, the people of God are referred to as this all the time. They, they, they live lives of faith and as a result, they grow outward signs of that faith that are real and healthy and true. Failure to do so is condemned by God. Remember how Jesus has just condemned the empty religion in the temple, which should have been the epicenter of fruit bearing for God's people in the world. Well, this interaction is simply an extension of that same warning. This is just him turning over the tables again out on the side of the road. And that is simply an extension of God's continual warnings to his people 
over the years. Let's do some biblical theology together. Let me take you just a whistle-stop tour through the scriptures of the warnings that bring us up to this point. I could have chosen hundreds. I'm just gonna go with a a few. Firstly, God's people are described again and again as God's tree or fruit-bearing plants. If you wanna do some homework, go read Judges 9, go read Jeremiah 12, go read Isaiah chapter five, go read Ezekiel 17, if you have the stomach for it. Go read Ezekiel 19, go read Psalm 1. The people of God are described as a fruit-bearing plant. Uh, God uses this image for them again and again and again. Secondly, the people of God are therefore to bear fruit for the good of the world. Uh, Look at Isaiah 27, verse six. It says, in days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the world with fruit. God chooses and saves and blesses a people, not just for themselves, but so that they will bear fruit for the rest of the world, so the rest of the world can look at that tree and say, hasn't God visited with these people? Behold, these are God's people. Look at the blessing they experience. Look at the fruit of their lives. The prophets come along. I've been reading a lot of the prophets lately because you know 2020 wasn't dark enough. And so uh, I thought, let's spend some time in Jeremiah. Um, but uh, the, the prophets say the whole time that God is coming like a, like a farmer, like the, the owner of a vineyard. And what is he gonna do? He's gonna assess and examine and test the crops. He's gonna see, is there any fruit? Again, you can look at it in Micah 7, Hosea 9. Look at Jeremiah 8, 13. He says, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. The scriptures warn again and again that God's gonna visit. And when he visits, what's he gonna find? Empty vines, fruitless trees. The people of Israel and Judah then of course get exiled as as part of God winning them back to themselves. And what do they experience in exile? Fruitlessness. What happens? What does God tell them? Well, it isn't just the cause of your exile, it's also the consequence of your exile. You didn't bear fruit up until now and so now you're gonna be in a situation where you can't bear fruit. Look again at Hosea 9, 16, Jeremiah 29, 17 when you get home. But... God is kind and patient and he's a God of new beginnings and new growth and so the promise is that even the exiled people will bear fruit again one day. It tells us in Amos 9 and in Micah 4 and in Zechariah 8 and in Ezekiel 36. Look at what Joel 2 says, right? Second chapter of Joel says, fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine Give their full yield. God says, oh, but I'm not done with my people. (laughs) I'm not done with my people. I sent them away because of their fruitlessness, but I'm not done. There will be a day again when they will bear fruit. And then Jesus enters into the world. And what is much of his early teaching about? Fruit bearing. About being an ax that comes and lays at the root of, of fruitless branches. Look at Matthew 3, it's so powerful. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is when he's warning the religious leaders of the day of their empty lives of idolatry. He says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It's not enough to simply just be Jewish, Jesus is telling them. That's not enough, you're supposed to bear fruit, you're supposed to live like my people. Here's the warning. 
Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so friends, do you start to see it? The disciples wouldn't really have been truly surprised at, at, at the, the image of this miracle. They were simply surprised again by his power. But this is just Jesus enacting what the scriptures have been warning for millennia. When he enacts this physical parable, the disciples would have understood that he was simply showing that God was again condemning the lack of fruit in the lives of people who claimed to be his worshipers. Just like the temple, where there was a pretense of righteousness, the people were living lives that looked a lot like religious devotion, but it resulted in no good coming from it. Passover, which was taking place at this time, and all its religious commotion wasn't resulting in any sense of actual religious devotion. Jerusalem and its temple was a figless fig tree. And Jesus was showing them no fruit, just leaves. Jesus was there to judge it and to cut off the branches that wouldn't bear fruit. But now notice, friends, before we sit in condemnation and go, stupid Israel, what were they thinking? How could they miss it? Such terrible sinners, not like us. It's more than just a lack of fruit. In a sense, the offense of the tree is that it looks like it might have fruit (laughs) because it has leaves. The leaves suggest what? Fruit is coming. Mark tells us in the parallel account that it wasn't actually the season for full-grown figs, right? So this may seem unreasonable from Jesus as an expectation. But a fig tree in leaf would have produced a small edible pre-fruit that the poor ate. It was bitter to the taste, but it was really nutritious. And so the poor would eat off fig trees even before the fruit was fully grown. And the tree, if it had leaves, should have at least had these. And the fact that it didn't showed that it wouldn't have any full-grown fruit later on. What was it? It was a pretense. From far away, from far away, it looked healthy. But on closer examination, it was actually lifeless. So it's the double sin of not just being fruitless, but also of pretending to be fruitful when you actually aren't. Jesus condemns that level of hypocrisy. God warns his people strongly about that. And friends, many of us still engage in that sort of pretense today. We do the church dance, right? We might even go into small groups. We might even have good Christian relationships where we have very vague prayer requests about very vague things. No one actually confesses their neediness. No one actually cries out in repentance. No one actually walks in authenticity. We all just pretend to be fine. Leaves. It's their fruit. Got me thinking. Hmm. I love extended images in the scriptures. Got me thinking about another image of fig leaves, Genesis 3. Our impulse in the garden to hide and cover and to pretend in our shame. What did they hide behind? Fig leaves. All leaves. No sincere faith. And before we sit back and just again marvel at the disobedience of these ancient people, let's stop and ask ourselves how these warnings apply to us. How is this like many of our lives? How are our lives of faith and subsequently our churches as our collective places of faith full of lots of leaves and not a lot of fruit? Make a lot of noise on Sunday mornings. Do we do a lot of good in the cities to which God has called us? 
This enacted parable was a real warning to the people of Israel, to be sure. But it's sobering for us today. Are we as God's people bearing good fruit? Now, if you had time to examine the warnings of the prophets through the Old Testament, you would find three things, I I believe, three things that are associated with fruitlessness. Three things that God condemns. First one's very clear, it comes up again and again and again. You can't read Isaiah or Jeremiah or Amos or Ezekiel without encountering this. One of the big signs that God condemns of fruitlessness is religious people who overlook the poor. (laughs) Again and again, God comes and says, your faith that's got no feet. You attend all the services, you go to all the ceremonies, you partake in all the feasts, and you crush the widow even just through ignorance, willful ignorance of their need. They detach their faith from neighbor love. And the prophets warn again and again, that's a sign of fruitlessness. Our friends, are we listening? Secondly, they become obsessed with religious pretense over genuine, humble religious practice. (laughs) Their worship services are full. the last time they saw the vibrant work of God in and amongst the repentant community of sinners is a long time ago. (laughs) Pretense of a genuine practice. And then thirdly, this one's key. You see this again and again, idol worship. (laughs) Instead of being willing to live in the dependent posture of someone created in the image of God, they rather create things in the image of men and women (laughs) so that they can be back in control. (laughs) And so they turn not to their maker, but to things that they have made to give them their sense of peace and love and comfort and security. And what does it lead to? Fruitlessness, because it's false worship. Our friends, and the Spirit help us. I'm so optimistic about the church, about our church and the church. It's clear to anyone who's paying attention that God is pruning the church, isn't it? He's pruning it. Now for some of us, that causes panic. Oh my goodness, he's cutting off some branches. He always said he would. He always said he would. Let's humbly bear fruit. Because friends, the mandate given to Israel is given to us with equal expectation. This imagery carries on right through the New Testament. The call is still to bear fruit. Romans 1, 13 speaks about it. Galatians 5, Philippians 1, 11, Philippians 4, 17, Hebrews 12, 11, James 3, 17. All of them calls to bear fruit in accordance with our faith. Perhaps the clearest one we have for us today is Galatians 5, 22 and 23. What does it tell us? Grow the fruit of the Spirit, right? Show that the Spirit lives in your midst. How? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Friends, if we were to do an audit of our lives and of our churches, are we known for this fruit? Kindness? (laughs) Gentleness? Oh, would our social media feeds give us away? Self-control? Is there fruit to our faith? There's a warning for us this morning because Jesus condemns fruitless pretense, he just does, okay? Second observation is this. 
Jesus empowers, so he condemns on the one hand, but then he empowers on the other hand. He empowers, what does he empower? Faithful dependence. He condemns empty, empty religious pretense. He empowers faithful dependence. What happens next in the story feels really non sequitur, right? It feels like, ugh, what happened? Did, did Matthew forget it? A bit in between, no? What happens here? Jesus goes from the conversation around fruitlessness to a conversation about prayer and faith. And the disciples are used to this because this happens all the time. So I'm sure they're looking at each other going, I guess we switch gears at some point, right? But in Jesus' mind, this is clearly connected. Look what he says. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? These are guys who have seen the dead raised. Now they're kicking a tree going like, that thing was just alive. Now it's dead, right? This is astonishing. And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up, and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. <laughs> now friends, how many of you feel a tension when you read that? Because you go like, is that really true? How, how do we interpret what Jesus has said here? Can we just be honest for a second and humble and say, we aren't really sure. I've read enough of the scholars to, to read that there's totally divergent opinions on this verse because we're not really sure. Perhaps that is one of the most underused little phrases in all of theology, we aren't really sure. God gives us all the clarity we need, but he doesn't give us all the clarity that he has, right? Now, now how do we interpret this? Well, the plainest reading, of course, is that we can move actual mountains with prayer. How many of you have tried? I have. However, so far in the history of the world since Jesus said this, so far as I can tell, no one has moved an actual mountain by the force of a pronouncement. I spent some time when I was coming back to faith in my early 20s in the Pentecostal tradition and kind of stirred up a bunch of wonderful stuff in my life. But I can remember a sermon very clearly by a preacher saying that no, no, the key to this verse is if you say to this mountain. So you can't just believe it, you gotta say it, right? Yeah, because faith comes through speech and so you gotta pronounce it, right? Mountain, move, and it will. And even, even though my heart was open to the Spirit of God, I still wanted to say to that guy like, show me. Do it, right? Let's go. There was a little hill in Johannesburg called Northcliffe Hill, all right? And a lot of people lived there, but I didn't care about that. I was like, make it go, say, say. And I'll confess that one night I even tried, right? I was like, Northcliffe Hill, move, right? And I think the Spirit of God was like, people live here, you dummy. Like, what are you trying to do? Like, this is not good fruit that you're trying to bear here, right? And so I'm glad that that didn't work in hindsight. But that's one reading of the scriptures, and, I'll, and, and I'm sympathetic to it because it's the simplest reading of the text, right? It just takes Jesus at his word, and it is clear that Jesus says to us that faith moves stuff, right? That, that, is, that, that it's helpful for us to have faith and that he loves it. Uh, there's another way to read it, which is in figurative language, which we've all done. In fact, I listened to Christian radio this morning on the way here, which I haven't done for a long time for the good of my soul, and every single song by God's grace um, and mercy was about moving mountains and obstacles in our lives, right? None of them were actual mountains, but they were figurative mountains, and so we can overcome these things. Now, I tried that many times too as a young man. Lord, help me move the mountain of this test that I have not studied for. Uh, Lord, help me move the mountain of this debt that I might have racked up. Lord, help me move the mountain of this girl who does not want to date me, but who I'm rather fond of, right? Um, and please let her never discover that I refer to her as a mountain. Um, but Lord, help me move these mountains, right? And, and so then mountains become anything. Now again, I'm sympathetic to this because some of you have been through hard stuff and you've prayed to the Lord and you've seen him do stuff. Praise the Lord, fantastic. 
And by faith, we ask him to do the impossible, right? Not just moving of mountains, but of the big mountain-seeming things in our life. And so I get it. But now listen, friends, I'm a biblicist. Look at what the text actually says. It's very deliberate in the language. See what Jesus said here. He uses a definite article. I was an English teacher in a, in a former life. And so articles make a big difference. He doesn't say a mountain. He says this mountain. Where is he on his way to Jerusalem? What's he facing? The, ch- the temple mount. And he's saying to the disciples, you won't just be able to see the enacted parable of God judging Israel. You will also see this mountain of religious power and the temple that sits on top of it. And you will see the hypocrisy that dwells in it overthrown into the sea. By faith, you will be able to overthrow the notion that God was just for one people group and you will be able to throw that into the sea across which lies the peoples of the world. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you still don't get it. You still don't see the largesse of what is coming. I have shown you in the temple what is going to happen and then I showed you a sign of it in that tree but you're obsessed with the small amount of power that it takes to kill a tree and you're not yet seeing you're going to be part of the greatest move of God ever in the history of mankind when God starts to invite people of all nations into his family from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Austin, Texas for crying out loud. And on and on and on it will go. If you have faith and do not doubt, you will be able to be part of that great work. But it isn't just prophetic. Jesus connects this then to the outworking of our faith, which is what? A heart of prayer. He's moving the center of power. This is big. In the moment of redemptive history, He is moving the center of power from the sacrificial system of the temple to the new temple of the Holy Spirit, which is what? You and me, his disciples, and the new system of power they have, which is not dominance, which is what? Knees bent, in the dirt, face to the ground, crying out in prayer. And he is saying, friends, listen, if you live by faith, if you align your life with Christ and if you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in the power of the flesh, then you will pray and you will pray big and God will give you what you want because you will want what he wants. This is what we were taught by John, who remember, heard this instruction, right? And then John tells us later on in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, he says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Jesus is teaching them and us, friends, listen carefully. That maybe the clearest example we have of a fruitless tree is the prayerless life of a believer. A prayerless life is a fruitless tree. Friends, you and I, We don't have to go to the temple to experience the power of God. Isn't that great news? We can sit in an air-conditioned auditorium for some of our congregations this morning. Praise God for that. The mountain of the sacrificial system was overthrown and cast into the sea, and we receive the benefits of that across those seas today. Now, now though, listen, that means the Holy Spirit of God dwells with us, and the power of God is available to us. Do we pray? (laughs) Do we ask, is your prayer life a fruitless tree? 
Because while the interpretation of Jesus' promise there may remain unclear, here's what is clear. Jesus loves faith. And he loves to see that faith enacted through big lives of prayer. Here's what I've noticed. It's become quite cool to be cynical about our faith. (laughs) To kind of not go in, to keep our cards close to our chest, right? to downplay the power of God, to explain away all of his workings. We build whole theologies around it. Well, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And without prayer, it is impossible to enact your faith. Are you coddling and protecting your doubts, allowing them to deepen, allowing them to grow? Or are you fighting for faith in spite of your doubts so that you can get to unbridled faith like the one that Jesus calls us to? You know how you'll know? Your prayer life will tell you the answer. (laughs) There is no clearer example of a fruitless tree than a prayerless Christian. Okay, oh man. (sighs) That's been a lot today. Why do we hire this guy as pastor preaching again? (sighs) No one knows, okay? How do we respond to that today? Well, two ways. First way is this. We respond to the warning of a cursed tree. We really do. When Jesus warns, we must listen. We must pay attention. We must take heed, right? Friends, some of us this morning are fruitless trees. You're living rooted in a Christian culture, participating in some outer workings of Christian practice, but you don't have any fruit You're not growing in the fruits of the spirit. You're not growing in obedience. You're not growing in acts of neighbor love and you haven't for some time and you know it. Okay, heed the warning. Don't pretend, don't just push out more leaves, right? Don't pretend, repent. God spoke to me and convicted me in my early 20s through John 15. I know it was God speaking to me because he spoke through such an imperfect messenger. We watched a Bible study. Um, I won't say the name of the preacher, but he did a series on John 15 and God pruning um, the branches, right? And so he dressed up like a farmer and walked through vines through the whole series that was on VHS. It was very exciting. It was very topical. The youngsters loved it. Um, and so uh, he went and you know, held the vines with his hand and cut some off and while he talked through John 15. And the Holy Spirit went like, I know that's lame, but listen to me. This text is incredible, right? And he warned me. And I realized that there were large areas of my life that, that, that weren't growing, that in fact, I was a fruitless tree, a fruitless branch. And the Spirit arrested me that day and he's been growing me slowly ever since. And so friends, if the Spirit is convicting you today, pay attention, repent. It's his kindness that calls you to repentance. Turn today, stop hiding behind your leaves, ask him to grow good fruit out of you. One good thing you could do today is just actually tell someone, I think I'm a fruitless tree. Will you pray with me? Will you pray with me? Lastly though, The last way we respond today is we don't just respond to the warning of a cursed tree. If I left the message there, we'd be no different than any other religious ideology. It would just be do better, right? But lastly, we know about who Jesus is and about what Jesus did. And so we also not just respond to the warning of a cursed tree, we also receive the blessing of a cursed tree. What do we do when we don't bear the fruit that we are supposed to? Well, our only hope is in the presence of the one who has the power to speak a curse over a tree. Our only hope in his presence is to remember that that same one was prepared to become cursed 
by himself hanging on a tree. He doesn't just curse trees. He allows that tree to curse him. Galatians 3, 13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone. He hangs on a tree. Friends, you can go to him. Why? He doesn't just curse trees. He allows the curse of your sin to be spoken over him so that you can bear fruit. Oh, what a savior. Oh, what a kind king. When I go home today, I'll look out into my backyard from the comforts of my air-conditioned living room because it's hotter than the surface of the sun outside. And I'll look out and I'll thank the Lord that I bought that fruitless olive. Why? It sits in my backyard as a daily reminder. It's a daily reminder to not pretend to be better than I am. It's a daily reminder that my faith ought to grow fruits of character, fruits of neighbor love, fruits of kindness to others. It's a daily reminder, every time I look at it, I'll remember to pray and to pray big and to pray in faith. It's a daily reminder of our blessed hope that our King Jesus was cursed on a tree so that sinners like you and I can finally start to grow good fruit. May it be so. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Pray that you speak to us powerfully today through your spirit. Pray that you convict us and change us. Lord, where there are fruitless trees hearing this message today, I pray that you speak to them powerfully. For those who have no faith, that don't even have roots that go down into faith, but who are encountering you for the first time today, realizing that their life doesn't produce the results that they pretend it produces, pray that you would save them today. Friend, if that's you, you're not even a Christian, but today you can reach out in faith and believe that this Jesus would move mountains, would move mountains to save you. That this Jesus cast the entire sacrificial system, not just into the sea, but onto himself so that you can be saved. I pray that you would run to him today. Friends, if that's you, you can pray in faith that the spirit gives you right now. If you're feeling called to him, that's the spirit awakening your soul. You just respond, you just say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died for me. Help me to grow good fruit. He'll meet you. Friends, if you're a Christian in this place and this morning you go, I think I, I might be a fruitless tree or at the very least I have some fruitless branches. Then stop pretending. Let the leaves be cut back. Let them be seen for what they are and trust in the mercy of a God who allowed himself to be cursed so that you wouldn't bear the curse. Our Father, give us grace. Give us humility. (laughs) Give us great faith. Faith that moves mountains. Faith that believes in your mercy. Faith that knows that the love of Christ is so big so wide, so high, reaches so far that nothing can separate us from it. Faith that says it's okay to be not okay, but it's not okay to pretend. Faith that runs to mercy. Faith that moves mountains. Give it to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.